We're returning this morning to Genesis chapter 34, continuing saga of Jacob's family. And we've been in the re-entry point. They've re-entered into the land of Canaan. Jacob demonstrated some amazing, courageous leadership when he was in front of his brother Esau. It was a, a risky position for him to stand out in front of everyone with 400 men, trained men, militia men, coming towards him with his brother. And in that heroic moment, Jacob lives up to his namesake of Israel, which is one who strives with God. He's He's moving with God at His side, and He's bold, and He's courageous. In this chapter, which gives us another picture on Jacob as he's personally developing, he's in this place not leading his family, actually, as well as he ought to be leading. And this chapter contains, frankly, some sensitive material, so that's why I asked the children to go out up through grade six. The sense the material here is placed, among other reasons, for um, literary reasons, theological reasons, to kind of give us a, an idea of the depravity of Canaan and the need for God's people to be kind of separated and moved to Goshen in Egypt and be safe from the influences that were developing in, in Canaan at the time. And there's also another application here that I think is important for us is that Jacob displays a passivity in his family leadership, and it's detrimental. God is silent, actually, in this text, but He's not, he's not gone. He's not prominent. But that points to the, the reality that Jacob here in this moment is passive, and he's not actively leading his family in the way that, that he ought to lead them. Now, Shechem was the first entry point that his grandfather, Abraham, uh, you know, took as he entered into Canaan. Jacob goes in at the same place, but Jacob lingers too long, and he's, he's in a seriously dangerous place, a spiritually dangerous place for his family. And he buys land, and he sets up an altar, and too much time is elapsing. Uh, Drew had mentioned the vow. Yes, he was supposed to have kept his vow and returned to Bethel, but here he is lingering in Shechem, a place where, where there's potential harm for his family, and his kids are starting to grow quickly now. Um, Joseph was a toddler when uh, Jacob met his brother Esau. Uh, Reuben was maybe 12 years old. And now there's some time elapsed because the events that occur in this chapter, uh, for them to occur, there has to be at least about a decade transpire for the young men moving from 12 to their early 20s to be able to carry out, carry out the, the heinous acts that are recorded here. And it's important for us to understand that, that there's time lapse and that's part of the problem. He's staying where he ought not be. Dinah, his daughter, is now an attractive young lady, 15 or 16 years of age, and Jacob has just been here too long. Canaan is increasing in its population. Its paganism is much more pronounced than it was back in the days of Abraham. At least in Abraham's day, there was a man by the name of Melchizedek who had the… Who had the uh, 
the, the, the mantle of the worship of the true and living God upon him. It seems now that this is disappearing and it's fading and the fabric of the, of the society is breaking down. And so, there is a, a problem here of passivity, and we saw this problem with Lot. Lot also had this problem. He moved himself close to Sodom and Gomorrah, and in the process, he destroyed his family. Jacob here is also moving. He's sliding. He's passive, and he's not leading his family. Now, that's the theme that we're going to be looking at here this morning. It's important for us to understand that God calls men to leave their homes. In fact, all Christians, not just men, but all Christians, teens or adults, male or female, we all have a responsibility of leadership in this world. We're called to be salt and light. And there is an anti-Christ culture out there that is pushing upon us, and if we're passively sitting there, it's going to infect us, and it's going to harm us. And so, we all have individually and collectively a responsibility to be salt and light in this world. And that is the big idea that I want us to see here, and it's up on the wall, that God calls Christians to confront our depraved culture with Christ. And so, there's a series of problems that I see developing because of passivity, and so in a sense, I'm going to be arguing from the negative to the positive here this morning. And I think that that's how the text unravels. And in the first, I'm going to go paragraph by paragraph, and we're going to read through this together and look at the nature of some of these problems, and yet also what it calls us to as Christians. We need to be doing the opposite of the things that we're seeing in this text. And the first is, there is a problem, I believe, of naivety and permissive parenting that is seen in verses 1 through 4 that's uh, very pronounced. Let's read the verses and then think through that. It says in verse 1, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, there is a passivity and naivety in the part of of both parents, particularly uh, Dinah's father and Shechem's father, the fathers are not really giving leadership to their children. And there's, again, a lot of naivety on the part of Jacob because when when he… we've seen this trait before with him. He makes assumptions based upon what he's most familiar with, but he is always broken by his assumptions. I mean, he he went uh, to his his uncle Laban, and he assumed things about marriage contracts that totally destroyed him in the end. He's coming back to Canaan. He's coming home to Canaan, but the home that he remembers is not the home that he left. It has changed. And his assumption base, he's making assumptions about the people that he's living with, and it's important for us to understand that in the assumptions that we make as believers, if we're not careful, we can make assumptions about what's going on around the world that we live in, and we can be destroyed by those assumptions if we're not careful. 
In particular, in this culture, as it was unraveling and becoming more depraved, girls of an unmarried age would, would not normally leave an encampment without being chaperoned. See, Jacob had pitched his tent and created a place of vulnerability for his, his daughter. Now, I believe that Jacob was not being careful in this, and he wasn't even teaching his daughter about propriety. I mean, even in his own home, he had had experience knowing his grandmother. His own mother had been abducted into harems of wealthy men. But going out into a Canaanite community at this point in Canaan's drift, unchaperoned, seems to suggest an impropriety on the part of Dinah and also the leadership of dad in this case. And it's important to understand here that Jacob is ultimately responsible to see that his daughter is chaperoned even if she would protest. Where do I see this, this potential rub here? Well, the, the phrase here in chapter 34, verse 1 says that Dana, she was, it was the way it's written, is that she was looking to go out to see the women of the land. She was attracted, if you will, to the women of the land. It's a derogatory comment, actually, um, by Moses to suggest that these ladies were not of wholesome companionship. And I think it's important for us to stop and consider what's being said here is that Jacob ought to have taken care to ensure that the companionship of his daughter was that which would help his daughter. And I think it's important for us to consider our own world and think carefully that society tells us that we don't have responsibility as dads to ensure the, the care of our daughters. As they get older, the permissive idea is just to let them run free. And when a dad's daughter begins to mature, this world tells us that we don't have a right to, to guard and care for our children. Sometimes it suggests to us that we really have no input on how our daughters might dress or how our daughters might have attitudes or how our daughters might uh, engage with friends in this world. And I think it's very important for us as men as we get older it's easy to forget about how it was when we were younger, and we can, if we're not careful, become permissive to the point that we become irresponsible, and we make assumptions that aren't based in reality. I think there can be a disconnect between dads and daughters. Now, I'm, I have a young daughter who's only four, and I haven't lived that part of my life yet. But I understand from others who tell me that it can be a challenge. But just as much as there might be a disconnect between dads and daughters, it's important for us to realize there can be a disconnect between dads and sons. We as dads need to have input into the life of our, our young men and to instruct them that women are not objects, but they're souls for whom Christ has died. And we have to guard the image, and take responsibility for the care of ladies in our sphere of influence. I think it's important that we be not naive to the changing of technology. 
I mean, we've got to help our children navigate it. We have to… There's wisdom in internet filters. We, we have to take care. Uh, we've got to communicate with our sons and daughters about the joy of saving the act of marriage for marriage. I think it's important that we don't just leave this to teachers or even youth leaders, that we as leaders in our own homes have to take initiative to instruct our children in the way that they should go. The world doesn't have the same values, and it's important for us to realize that we live in a world that while it may on the surface give lip service to laws of consent, that we be not naive to the realities of the world in which we live. I'm glad that there is still an outrage to, you know, the depravity of these events that are being written about here in this chapter. But we got to, we've got to realize that we have a very confused world that on the one hand, it decries the abuse of women, and on the other hand, objectifies them at the Super Bowl. We are living in a very confused world that wants to do what's right, but doesn't know how or have the courage to do what's right, and we need leaders in our homes to do what's right. Our world doesn't know what love is all about. Love is a denial of self for the benefit of others. That's true love. And so, in the next paragraph, we see another problem develop. We see a problem of silence when abuse demands justice. Verses 5 through 7, we read, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. And this paragraph really shows us that Jacob is derelict in his responsibility to protect his, the interests of his own daughter. He's silent when he should have advocated for justice in this situation. It, it's a, my, my heart breaks as I, as I read this that there wasn't the courage to, to stand up for truth and protect. And as you read through this whole thing, the, the writer is very intentional to drive home this point. I mean, he emphasizes family relationships to the point of like, there's, it's so obvious. Like in verse 1, he says, uh, we read, and Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob. In verse 3, he says, Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. Verse 5, his daughter Dinah. Verse 5, his sons, and he talks about Jacob's sons. And then verse 11, he talks about his daughter, Jacob's daughter. I mean, these are all signals of family obligation to which Jacob should have said, yes, this is wrong. I'm going to protect and care for the interests of my daughter. But he was quiet. And silence in the midst of injustice is something that's intolerable. It's a problem. In recent news, we've seen horrific things. 
man by the name of Larry Nasser, who was convicted and sentenced to 125 years for the abuse of gymnasts with Michigan State University and the Olympic Committee. I mean, our nation has witnessed all kinds of testimonies of the victim impact statements of at least 150 ladies, or maybe even closer to home, not particularly this church family, but in mission boards we have supported through the years. We have seen Don Ketchum, son of the founder of ABWE, who abused 18 children in Bangladesh and was not stopped or confronted for any of these things. And when we hear these things, we ask ourselves, how long, how, how could this possibly have gone on for so long? Well, the enablement of these things happens when we, when we do not talk, when we, not, when we remain silent, when talking ought to be what we do. And so, a hardened and determined abuser can only grow harder through a lack of confrontation in these types of things. Rachel… Um, Den Hollander is one of the ladies that gave an impact statement, and I say that it is worth watching. She is a Christian young lady, a, a, a lady, and uh, you can find it on YouTube, but she has this powerful presentation of the gospel, and she doesn't mince words with the need for justice to be applied, and at the same time, she offers forgiveness, but yet there's condition upon the repentance, a demonstration of genuine repentance that this forgiveness is offered upon. She writes in a follow-up article, and I think this is important for us to hear these words that she gives. In a follow-up article in Christianity Today, a couple of weeks later after her testimony, she said this in regard to repentance. Because repentance in the face of injustice is a critical part of restoration and forgiveness. She says, repentance is a full and complete acknowledgement of the depravity of what someone has done in comparison with God's holy standard. And I do believe that entails an acknowledgement of that and a going in the opposite direction. It means that you have repented to those whom you have harmed and seek to restore those whom you have hurt. And it's important for us to realize how important repentance is in the process of righting injustices. Repentance is the bellwether that signals that a heart has been changed. It's necessary for the fruit of repentance to have time to grow and bear fruit. It takes time for that to grow and show. That's the second problem that I see that's applicable to the day in which we live. The third problem here in verse 18 to 12, 8 to 12, is the problem of spiritually mixed marriages. Let's read verses 8 through 12, and there's negotiation going on here. Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, 
Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me, ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, in this paragraph, there's negotiation for Dinah that's occurring. And Hamar is advocating, what he's really advocating is the mixing of tribal states to form a grander alliance in the land of Canaan. But this is exactly what Abraham and Isaac feared might happen to their descendants. It was not good for God's people to become one with the people of the land. The Messiah who was prophesied long ago was to come through the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not through the descendants of of Shechem. It was to come through him. And so this would be a dilution of that bloodline, but it would also threaten the spirituality of the people. And at this point, the spirituality, as you can see, is pretty low. Can it even go any lower? But it could. And there's a spiritual war that's happening in this proposal. There's the advantage of wealth and power that's offered here as, a, as kind of like a pottage, a, a kind of like a, you, you can have this bowl of soup in exchange for, your, for the spirituality, the potential of corruption of your family. And there's a danger here of the intermarriage, and it really ought to be understood by believers as well. Sadly, this is not always recognized. When two people have two different starting points regarding belief in God, you set yourself up for potential conflict and you set yourself up for potential confusion. You know, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks uh, to spouses who find themselves, when they come to know Christ and they become born again, they suddenly realize that their spouse is not on the same page with them just to, to maintain that relationship and nurture it and, and to encourage it and that God might do something there to bring them to Christ. But Paul also says that if you find yourself abandoned or you find yourself that your husband or your wife has died, that you're free to remarry, you're to remarry, though, in that case, in marry a believer. And so, Paul is saying what I believe is inherently here in the text in Genesis chapter 34, that, that, the, that the mingling of souls can cause problems for families in the future. But what's really interesting in this passage is that Jacob is silent again. He doesn't take initiative to give direction in all of this. And I think it's an important application for us as men and leaders in our homes that, that we have the opportunity within our children in the formative years to kind of influence and encourage our children when they lack wisdom, when they lack understanding. And we need to encourage our children to be seeking a spouse who is a believer in Christ because if we're not guiding them before their emotions take root, the emotions can speak louder than what God's Word encourages us to do. And so important for us as believers to to guard and take leadership and responsibility within our homes. The fourth problem that's in this text occurs in a longer section, and I'm going to read it, and I think we're going to be moving a little bit quicker, actually, in spite of the length of these these next uh, series of verses. 
verse 13 to 24, we see the problem of dishonesty in communication. Verse 13, it says, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. And if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing which he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them uh, our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people." When every male among us is circumcised, and as they are circumcised, and as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now, in this longer paragraph, there are really two paragraphs here. Dad is silent, so the boys speak up, and they negotiate, and they do it in the shadows. They know full well what they're going to do, and, and they are deceitful, and they hatch this plan, and it's so destructive what's going to happen, which we haven't read yet. And the brothers are actually not the only guilty parties here in deceitful kind of communication. You also have Hamar and Shechem are also deceitful in their approach with their townspeople. They're using the weapon of politics and fair and objective truth. They're trying to uh, address these people, and it's not fair and balanced. There's a, an, a, a, a suggestion that if we, we do this, we're going to gain great wealth. Well, there may be some truth to that, but the motivation here is really just to satisfy a problem that occurred. The problem was his son. And so there's a, a cover-up opportunity that's going on through this. And a passivity here in all of this is a problem for the truth. There is a deceitfulness, and we have to guard against a duplicity that speaks one way in one situation and really is guarded, and we're, we're communicating something maybe in our own heart that's not true and parallel. It's a problem. We have to be very careful that we live in the light and not in the shadows. And so, there is a problem of deceitfulness that is an outgrowth of passivity that occurs. What if Jacob had said, I'm taking my daughter, we're going home. What could have happened? But his passivity created the opportunity for his brothers to manipulate and connive, or his sons to manipulate and connive. And so, what we have in the next 
paragraph in verse 25 to 29, we also see the problem of taking justice into our own hands. In verse 25 to 29, we read on, and on the third day when they were sore, that is the men of the city were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and they plundered. So the two sons who were actually the brothers through Leah and the sister, the natural sister of Dinah, step in. They see the opportunity. They sweep in. They're taking justice. They should have done what dad ought to have done to rescue the daughter, and now they're coming in to do what he should have done. And this is a danger, a danger of vigilantism. Justice is perverted when justice is not carried out by those who have the authority to carry it out. And it's a passivity that creates that problem. When people who have the responsibility are passive, there's this tendency to overcorrect by the populace and the mob. And I'm going to speak to our culture a little bit here. Here in America, if we don't have a strong executive and judicial branch of government, mob rule begins to take place. And people do what they want and what's right in their own eyes because they think that justice won't be carried out. But typically, it goes too far. But you know what? This, not just as a cultural phenomenon, this actually plays itself in our own homes. What happens if dad or mom sit in the corner and let the kids duke it out? Parental involvement is necessary for the peace of our homes. And it's so critically important for us to realize that we as parents have have an important part to play in the shepherding and leadership of our homes. It's hard work. It's not what we want to do when we come home at 3 or 4 o'clock at night. The last thing that we want to do is break up the peace when we've been, or make the peace when we've been trying to make peace all day at work. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to lead our families and so it's important for us to see that we take our role of enacting justice as we ought to as parents. In the last paragraph, we come to the very end here, and we see what is the root of all this problem. The root of all this problem is our own the self. In verse 30 and 31, these two little verses show us a little bit of a contrast between the boys and Jacob, but, but the root of the problem is right there. Verse 30, he says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves together and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And then the brothers responded, verse 31, But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Harsh language, indeed. 
But the reaction here of the two boys and Jacob reveal the root of, of this passivity. Jacob's saying, hey, you brought the trouble on me. It's all about me and my protection, self-protection. This fear and this pride was being governed by himself. And the boys, on the other hand, go so far in their enactment of justice, it reveals that they have a selfish interest in this as well. It's our sister. How could they possibly do this to our pride? And of course, it was absolutely wrong. There's no question there. But their family pride was offended. And all of this resulted because of a passivity of leadership between father and son. So what do we do with all of this? There's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of negativity. But it's important for us to say this negativity and realize that God calls all Christians to confront our depraved culture with Christ, with the true love of Christ. We, we, you know, we cannot also, we have to realize as well that we cannot confront our depraved culture if we are a part of it. And the root of darkness is the absence of the awareness of God in our thinking. If we're not consumed with a thoughtfulness of God, we can very passively, very, you know, we can move into the culture and feel like we're a part of it if we're not careful. And the depravity of the human heart pushes the reality of God out of our thinking, and this exacerbates our selfish nature. You know, how often can we pass the weeks, if we're not careful, we can pass the weeks without even taking time to open the Word of God and, and connect with our Heavenly Father? How often do we, do we just go through a, a routine of life and, and just don't give any thought for God? That's a passivity. God calls men to lead their homes. God calls all Christians to lead in their spheres of influence. But the answer for all of this darkness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the redress of this darkness. The gospel is not just an entry point that gets us out of hell free. What it is is it points out the fact that none of us are pure. None of us were fully contaminated. There's a humbling process that takes place in that. But the gospel gives us also the solution. Yes, we have this tendency within us, but we also have the grace of God which frees us from this. We can take our sin to the cross and receive forgiveness, and we can expose it to His holiness and realize that we're not going to be destroyed through that that exposure. God's grace and mercy is there for us. We have all come short of the glory of God. And when we see our own sin, even after we've been saved, we have to keep turning to the Savior. He gives water that, that satisfies our souls. I think it's important for us to realize, yes, the gospel is a part of this, but God delights as an aspect of the gospel that justice to the oppressed is had. God vindicates those who have been abused. God restores the feeble of heart and gives people the courage to overcome passivity. 
How do I know that God restores? In the later chapters, God brings justice into play in the lives of the brothers who did wrong. God, just, God also comes back with the children of Israel and wipes out Canaan with the nation coming in. God does bring justice. But when we have sin in our hearts, the thing that we have to do with it is take it to the justice of God. We have to take it to the cross where it has been paid for. And it is through the daily sacrifice, the daily surrender, the daily destruction of the sin that occurs in our hearts that God gives us the courage to be salt and light in the community in which we live. And that's at the point where we will, able, we will be able to, to, um, to address the depraved culture that we live in. It's the amazing grace of God that delivers the soul. And that's what we communicate to a lost and dying world. But we cannot be a part of the culture. We have to come out of the culture to start addressing it.